When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. From the grassroots to the elite, from the juniors to the pros, covering the Aussies trekking the globes to the champions internationally. Welcome to the First Serve, your home of tennis. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the first serve. It is your home of tennis Monday night. We're back for another week. Love you to get involved tonight. one 736 736 or on the text. I've got that right in front of me here. 0433981116. Brett Phillips, as always, joined by my co-host, the 2015 Yuka medalist for Australia's best tennis performer, holder of the fastest serve in the history of the game, He's been holding court, I tell you what, in the past week on the back of one little tweet that he thought he'd sneak out and it might just sort of just fly under the radar. Imagine having to travel away from home, family and friends, to get paid to play sport for an extended period of time in relation to the proposed AFL hubs. Interviews left, right and centre. I turn on the radio, I turn on the TV, I read the newspaper. There he is, Sam Groth. Good to have you on board, Grothy. BP, good to be here. Yeah, it's been a uh, a very busy week, that's for sure. Didn't uh, didn't expect it to blow up like that, but I'm sure there's many listeners on this radio station who'd have a, a big opinion on what I had to say. And you know, one would like me to shut up as a tennis player, or two would you know love to see footy back in, in some sort of way. So. Yeah, it's been an interesting week, though. Uh, certainly has, and it's all bubbling away in tennis at AFL level. Look, uh, if you uh, want to certainly have your uh, say on what Grothy said last week, uh, we can certainly go there if you like. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. 736 736 Bit on the show tonight. I think this is our eighth week, Grothy, that we're uh, sitting here with the, um, the show continuing post, of course, uh, what has happened with the uh, coronavirus. But it was on this show about seven days ago that Sam, in a fairly big week, not only on, uh, of course, his thoughts on the AFL hubs, but what he had to say on this show about seven days ago. I'm hearing a lot of talk right now from from the ATP side, obviously, where I've still got a lot of connections that you know, they're... Uh, and it comes back to this relief fund, I guess, too, where if they go and put a huge amount of cash into a relief fund, how long can the tour survive if they're not back up and running uh, in 2020 and, and maybe looking at even preparing that for a worst-case scenario for July 2021, which would be a real debacle. They've got to be able to keep themselves afloat. I know they've put a lot of their staff down to 60% pay um, when initially they thought they'd be able to keep them on full pay. I don't think they initially thought it was going to be as bad as it's become. And also here in the WTA went and gave everybody who was meant to be in the tournament, first-round prize money from Indian Wells. But I'm also hearing that they're financially in dire straits right now. And, mm. you know, we talk about a merger, and if that is the case between the ATP and the WTA, you've got to think yep. to a degree it'll be the ATP propping up the WTA side of things for the moment. Now, I haven't heard that anywhere else around the world. I've been <laughs> digging all week, Grothy. So you did have that to say. It's going to be a very interesting space to watch. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, I think, obviously, this we say it every week. Every week we get on here and there's a lot still to play out in this whole 
scenario. I mean, I think there's there's been a little bit of silence, hasn't there, on on this player relief fund? It's sort of come off the the tennis players' thoughts. I think mm. a little bit over the last week or so. I don't think it's been. Well, I haven't seen it discussed as much around the traps. I don't know if you have either. And I think as as we've mentioned also, I think the focus now is all going to the US Open really and whether they're going to play. And you feel like the whole season now, I know it was mentioned here a few times, but it it hangs on that tournament now. And if they're going to try and play, then they'll keep trying to work out the season. If they're not going to play, you got to get a, you, well, you get the feeling like we're going to start to mm. see just these sort of little exhibition events that are popping up. I know there's one uh, in Europe happening right now, obviously in isolation, I believe Tennis Australia are in talks to try to get some domestic sort of competition and match play started. And yep. yeah, other than that, if the US Open doesn't go ahead, I'm not sure we see tournament play. No, I agree. Uh, do you think if you were to give a percentage of the chance of the US Open being held in Indian Wells, and that's been floated, that's sort of the latest report coming out over the weekend, that Indian Wells hasn't been ruled out and maybe looking at November, what percentage would you give it a chance yeah, I mean, of being that, played First of all, I, I'm, I'm with the understanding that JP Morgan, who's the big US Open sponsor, doesn't want to take the tournament yep. out of New York. Obviously, no. a huge amount of money comes from the major sponsors. Oh, I'd probably give it a 10% chance, I think. Okay. You know, I, I think the biggest problem that tennis has is not even, you know, the US they seem to be wanting to open up and there's people out protesting and, and doing whatever they want really on a state-to-state basis. I mm. still think the biggest problem we're going to have is, is getting people to these events. I mean, Australia right now has an international travel ban. How do you even get players out of the country unless yep. those players do a deal with the government to be able to play? How do you fly there? Do you have to put a, a Qantas charter flight on? What does that cost? I mean, there's a huge amount of uh, moving parts that would have to, to be put together to get even just the players from Australia to the US to be able to play. Yeah, no doubt. So over the past seven weeks since the coronavirus pandemic has closed down tennis, we've chatted to players on this show, a player agent, some leading tennis administrators, a journalist, Courtney Walsh, last week. We've covered the coaching angle. In the short term, we know what has been canned for 2020 and what is still possible if the tide could turn the right way globally with the virus. But as you've touched on, Grothy, that, that does seem like a bit of a pipe dream. But we simply wait for the call to be made of what is left of the international calendar and whether any professional tennis is possible. You also just touched on, I had a conversation with Tennis Australia today that we may learn something in the next sort of 48 hours, some clarity around what is going to happen here domestically as we're getting closer to getting back to some sort of normality uh, later on this week with an announcement. So in the short term, as we're aware, lots of discussions and plans being formulated to give the players not making any money from the sport. And there is a lot, some financial relief, so they can remain in a position to actually continue playing when the green light is given to return. But longer term in this unprecedented hiatus, thoughts turn to the bigger picture. Now, those at the coalface of the sport without the week-to-week tour life to contend with can apply more time to what is best for tennis in terms of its global structure to allow more individuals to make a living out of the game. And then how do they look at the, the actual structure to try and streamline the stakeholder setup that governs tennis with the merger of the ATP and the WTA at the forefront, Grothy, of those discussions? Uh, these comments from Billie Jean King... And Andy Murray, who actually spoke on uh, CNN, we might just play that for you in the last few days. The leadership of both are much more interested in in combining a partnership. So I think 
anything's possible if we stay positive and work through each point by point by point like you always do. But can you imagine how strong we would be if we could negotiate as one voice? Cha-ching. Uh, on that cha-ching note, Andy Murray, certainly some in, in men's tennis are concerned that they wouldn't get as maybe as much cha-ching, so to speak. Do you see any <laughs> struggle from other men in your sport to try to get this done? And because I presume you want to see it done. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. There's some, some potential for that. I mean, I've had sometimes conversations in the past when there's been prize money increases within the sport where, you know, let's say the first round losers check has gone from the men it went from like $8,000 to $10,000 and the women's went from $6,000 to $10,000 and I spoke to some of the male players about that who were unhappy because the prize money was equal and I said, well, <laughs> would you rather there was no increase at all? And, you know, they said to me, yeah, actually. And I was like, well, you know, that's some of the sort of the mentalities that you're working with in these discussions where someone would actually rather make less money just so they're not um, on an equal footing with um, with some of the female players. So there will be some some challenges. But look, I think uh, when you have obviously a lot of the, the, the top male players now starting to, to discuss it and talk about it, that's definitely very promising, you know, but I think, you know, it's really important, I think, in these negotiations that, you know, when it comes to the sort of key decision makers right now in tennis, pretty much all of them are men. And I think that when these discussions happen, it's, it's quite important not just to see this merger through like a man's eyes and to bring more women. So there's Andy. He has always been uh, very vocal in his support of uh, women. Emily Marismo, the first player to have a female coach and, and gender equality. What do you make of those comments from Andy Murray, Grothy? Oh, look, I think he's always been at the forefront and pushing, you know, the, the equality uh, conversation between men's and women's tennis and equal prize money. I think... From my understanding as well, I mean, I know he touched on that men, there was some men that didn't maybe want the prize money to go up if it was equal. I know from when I was playing, for example, the Masters events, they'd all signed equal prize money deals. And with how well that level of tournament, the 1,000 events, for example, on the ATP Tour were going, yep. um, there was the ability, even though a lot of those tournaments, they don't run concurrently, they run week after week. So they run back-to-back, -back, for example, I think in, in Rome, is it? They, they don't actually play during the same tournament but they offer the same prize money now i know those tournaments they've all signed agreements and the men's yep. tour at that level has been making a lot more money out of that event and uh, the tournament sometimes has also been reluctant because anytime they give a prize money increase for the men's side they also have to give the same increase for the women so i know men for example wanted a you know 12 percent increase for example out of one of those tournaments then that tournament also had to match the 12 percent on the women's side which uh, if they're not making the same profit out of that event, if you just look at it as two events, um, that's where I think the equal prize money debate becomes an issue. I don't think anyone's against equal prize money. Hmm. I think they're against equal prize money when it stops one organisation, whether it be the men's or the women's. I'm sure there's some women's events that do better than men's. I mean, I know the, the Brisbane International event, the women's prize money is over a million dollars yep. at that event compared to, yep. you know, 500 and something thousand for the men. So it doesn't always work, the women trying to catch the men. There's events that go the other way also, but you've also got to work out which events are making a lot of money and then how that prize money is distributed, in my opinion. Yeah, there's a lot to sort of tackle, isn't there? And it, it sort of makes sense when you just sort of think about it, it all coming together, but there's, there's a lot to, uh, to work through. 
uh, to make sure that the WTA don't feel like they're sort of an acquisition, that it's a, it's, it's a fully-fledged merger. Yeah, and, and, that they're, and that they're on equal footing in that yeah. merger. I mean, I, I agree. It, it's got to be not the ATP taking on the WTA. It needs to be no. two organisations coming to form one body if that's the way it's going to go. So where we're going to sort of steer tonight, and this is on the back of our show back on April 13, where Grothy had his say on what potentially the tennis tour could look like coming out of this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Let's take a listen. I'm a huge golf fan, and it's something that golf probably does well. It could do better. But tennis, we've got the ATP Tour, which follows a very set schedule, and then players basically pick where they go below that every week of the year. And, Chris, you went and played pretty much all of last year in Europe, so that was your decision to go play basically a European tour for yourself. Well, instead of Tennis Australia going out, for example, and and funding players, why don't they put on a 25-, 30-week tour here in Australia, have a tour in Australia, a tour in Europe, have the ATP tour above, obviously, South America and Asia and all the regions have their tour, and you still earn ranking points. And if you do really well, you can still jump up into that main echelon. But maybe you have orders of merits like golf does where if you finish top two on the Australian tour next year, you gain entry into or automatic entry into certain amounts on the ATP tour. You get certain entries into Grand Slam events. And maybe then, because the conversation always comes back to how can we support the lesser ranked players better? If you can offer them a tour with the ability to travel less, keep their travel costs down, but also the ability to earn more ranking points. And if you go and excel, it's the players that go and travel and and reach reach their way up to the top that are, are the ones that are excelling anyway. They're the ones that move through the level. If you can support those players with a tour where it maybe costs them less to start with before they do transition through, I think that could be a, a good option. So that was Sam Groth on our show, April uh, 13. So we actually want to explore it a little bit more tonight. And I just wanted to play that before we do take a break, uh, Grothy, because I reckon for the first time ever on the first serve that I can think of, we're actually going to welcome in a guest from another sport just to... I suppose, bring this conversation to life. And we often compare golf, uh, tennis. Uh, you obviously alluded to uh, golf there. You're a, a, a you know, massive golf fan. You play you know, quite a bit of golf, not currently uh, in, your, uh, in your backyard at the moment. <laughs> but uh, we want to sort of just try and delve in for the listeners out there tonight, golf versus tennis. And I did have a conversation with a man today who also played uh, both at the professional level and had some really interesting things to say. So let's get into that after the break. Of course, you can keep an eye on thefirstserve.com.au, our website, plenty happening there, podcasts, plenty of news articles. So we're here thanks to Top Agents Real Estate. If you're looking to buy, rent, sell or have that property investment manager, make contact with David and his team. They're in the office tomorrow, 95584599 or their website, top-agents.com.au. Back with more on The First Serve. The First Serve. Your home of tennis. Welcome back to the first serve for Monday night. Brett Phillips, Sam Groth with you. one 736 736 Happy to take your calls or your text thoughts tonight. 433-98-1116. The tennis hiatus. Where's it going to be? The bigger picture in the long run. All that to unfold over the next weeks and months. But we just played before the break, uh, Grothy's take uh, going back three or four weeks ago on, on a possible um, look at what tennis could do and, and similar maybe to what golf do. We just wanted to explore that a little bit more tonight and have a chat to uh, Brad James, the general manager of high performance of uh, Golf Australia. So many similarities, but 
clearly so many differences between these two big global sports. Brad, great to have you on the show. Brett, thank you for having me. We wanted to, I suppose, tackle this from a, a few different angles. I think everyone who listens into SCN, they love their sport. They sort of get the golf scene, that we have the majors like tennis. But unlike tennis, we have all the separate tours. The PGA Tour, the most lucrative in the US, the European Tour, the Asian Tour, of course, closer to home here, the Australasian Tour, and then obviously the Korean Tour. There's the Japan Tour, and it goes all the way down. Can you just give us, I suppose, an explanation of the golf structure and just how sort of lucrative it is from the top down to those lower tours? Yeah, but you've done a good job mentioning all those tours. Um, You've obviously got the women's tours as well. You've got the LPGA, you've got Japan, the European, the Korean, the ALPG tour. You've got so many tours out there for both males and females, and everyone wants to be on the PGA tour. Um, And then obviously the next step down for the men is the European tour or and maybe the Japan tour, the Asian tour, then you've got your Australasian tour, like you mentioned. But there's so many opportunities for these athletes to play worldwide uh, at all levels. Um, and if you look at someone like a, a Matt Griffin's a great example. Matt plays up in the Japan tour. Um, you know, it's an eight, ten hour flight back to Australia. It's pretty easy to get to. It's a one way flight to Melbourne. Um, and he can make a very good living up there. But then you've got your tour over in the major tour, uh, the PGA tour. Wherever it wants to get to, but you have pathways to get there, whether that be through the Corn Ferry Tour um, or your pathway tours underneath those, or the, you know, your Latin America Tour, your PGA Tour of Canada, uh, or your PGA Tour of China. But they're all trying to get to the PGA Tour. Um, when I say all, the majority. Uh, and then European tours, obviously, a great pathway as well. Brad, you mentioned there's so many tours there when you're speaking through it. Roughly how many Aussie golfers, men and women, would we have on the international scale at the moment? G'day, Sam. How are you doing, mate? I'm going to say, as professional, you talk professional golfers? Yeah, professional golfers who are sustainably or making a living. Obviously, I've got a few mates that play here. And that's financially tough. There's, there's not as many weeks through that period. But internationally, how many players do we think are making money and, and are out on tour at any one time? Oh, look, making money depends how you define making money. You know, it's very similar to tennis. You and I, Sam, you know, to be out there on tour, it's very, very expensive. Um, you've got so many expenses from taking for golf, taking your caddy, your coach, your sports psych, your physio, there's so many other expenses I think people see these athletes and they see the amount of money they make that week but there's so much more that goes into it look I would say if you're ranked in for for golf if you're ranked in that top three to four hundred you can make a reasonable living you look at a a Brett Coletta uh, who plays on the Corn Ferry Tour one of our up-and-coming Aussie stars Uh, and Brett's I'm going to say Brett's ranked probably around that four to five hundred mark um, and he's making a pretty good living out there on the Corn Ferry. And his ultimate goal is to get to that PGA Tour, and that's why he's on the Corn Ferry. Um, but Brett, Brett can make six figures out on that Corn Ferry Tour, and his current ranking is, I think, it's around four to 500. And I think this is where we talk about trying to change the structure of tennis and how many guys are making a living. If you're talking about a guy ranked four to 500 making triple figures, there's no way that's happening in tennis right now, Brett. Like, that's just not even fathomable, fathomable for a guy ranked... 500 to be able to sustain himself in that sort of way. No. And this, I actually got the, I got this from the economics of sport. This was back in 2013. The 400th ranked golfer on the money list earned $203,000 Australian. That was in 2011. To reach that kind of income in men's tennis, a player in 2012 needed to be ranked 137 in the world and a woman needed to be ranked 107. That was just a little comparison from the economics of sports. So, Brad, there's there's a, a fair uh, gap. I mean, has golf always maintained that this is the best structure or has there been debates over the years that 
maybe it, it, it's not quite achieving what golf wants it to? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, Brett. You look at uh, some of the discussions this year and what's been going on for a couple of years now, sort of the, the global golf tour or the, the Premier Golf League, they're calling it. Um, and they're looking at having a tour that has about 18 events annually, uh, possibly just the, the top 48 players in the world. No cuts. The tour goes on for, for eight months only, uh, obviously a little bit shorter than what the current tour goes on. Uh, and then the players are still playing for, you know, that the proposal was about, I think it was about $10 million US per event. That's a lot of money um, for a very small amount. And I would assume... Sam, is that somewhat similar to the ATP Tour? Oh, I mean, there's no way that the ATP Tour is playing for $10 million for eight months of the year every week. I mean, that'd be an incredible number to be able to have that sort of prize money. The only events that are carrying that sort of prize money are that top echelon sort of Masters 1000 events. I mean, I, I think tennis players would jump at the opportunity to be able to find a way to, to play for that sort of money. And I think it's the way it trickles down, though, for me. I'm sure players here playing in the Australasian Tour would say, well, the money's not great, but they're also able to stay home and play, you know, 12 to 15 events. And they've got a couple of those those bigger sort of events here. And, and you know, you're playing, you know, four-day tournaments. Um, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be that debate, isn't it? Like, does golf do it better? Does tennis do it better? Um, I have this debate with Lucas Herbert quite often. Uh, he's he's a mate of mine, obviously playing over in Europe, one in Dubai. Um, you know, if you don't make a cut, you don't make money. But at the same time, he's guaranteed PGA Tour status now from winning one event for the next, or sorry, European Tour status for the next three years. Um, you know, there's always going to be that give and take, I guess, of the two systems. But just when you look at purely a numbers perspective, so many more guys in golf making a living from a sport that's played four days a week on a television scale, for example. So, Sam, how many would be making a living out on the tennis tour from Australia? Oh, a handful, I would say, at the moment. Yeah. I mean, the guys inside the top 100, for sure. Um, those guys like Chris O'Connell and stuff just outside now, they'd be covering their costs. But, I mean, he's had to go back and sign. He's the example because he's been in the media recently quoted saying he's had to go and sign for JobKeeper now. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot fewer in Australia right now, making making a living out of, of tennis, that's for sure. Okay. How, so, how many Aussies would be out there giving it a go, Sam? When you, when you look at golf, I'm going to say, this is a, a, a reasonable guess, I'm going to say there's around that you know, 1,000 to 1,200 uh, Aussies that are out there at least playing professional golf in some form or the other, whether it be at the, the, the mini tour level, at your Australasian tour level, or even at, at your, your PGA tour level. How many would be trying to give it a crack at the, at the tennis level? Oh, I can't imagine there being anything like that sort of number. I mean, BP, we've been involved in this for a long time. I'd struggle to name a thousand guys yep. out on the tour trying to make a living out of playing tennis right now. Yeah, no doubt. Brad, I just want to touch on Matty Griffin. You mentioned him before. So he played 19 events on the Japan Tour last year. You talk about the proximity of Japan to Australia and been able to come back and forth fairly comfortably. He made $561,000 Australian in prize money on the Japan tour, which I think is ranked sort of, I think, sixth or seventh in terms of the most lucrative in prize money. He's a guy that's, I think, made or didn't make the cut of one of the majors. I think that was the British Open uh, where he tried to um, okay. obviously um, you know, play that tournament. So he's a guy that's never reached uh, you know, the, the great top heights of the PGA Tour. I think his ranking is somewhere around 344, looking that up uh, over the weekend. So that, that, that's a great, a great example of the huge gap mm. that the 344th ranked uh, tennis player would not even be making that sort of money over, what, Sam, uh, four, five, six, seven more years. 
Why, mate? I played the first 10 years of my career and made $300,000 and I was ranked 200 in the world. I mean, I know it's gotten a little bit better at that, at that lower level, but that's what I made through that first period of my career. Then all of a sudden you jump inside the top 100 and then you're making 10 times that almost instantly. I mean, mm. this is where mm. the conversation always comes back to this huge difference. Now, I know the top guys in golf are making a lot of money as well. Don't get me wrong. But when you've got a guy like Matty Griffin, who I actually played golf with recently at Commonwealth in, in the Pro-Am there, ripping guy. Yeah. But the fact that he's able to just stay in Japan, as you mentioned, Brad, it's the same time zone as Australia, basically. It's a one flight up and back. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you, if that's an option, find, that's a pretty good living to be able to make every year, half a million bucks, if that's what he's doing. You know? it's, it's not bad going. So, Sam, if you had control of the tour, if you were in charge, how would you structure it? I'd go very similar. And I think we've had this discussion already. It's, it's a very similar structure that I try to undertake have the atp tour at the top have a global event have it still working off rankings but at the same time have tours where it still counts towards your ranking but there's that goal where if you go and win the australian tour you get entry into other events i, I think it's a great way to do it i mean zach murray's from my neck of the woods he plays at commonwealth he's now got his european tour card yep. by finish, finishing second on the money list by playing events here in australia he now has that opportunity to go yep. and play in europe for a full season I, I think it's great incentive for a guy like that yeah, look, great. Zach Murray is a great example. You even look a year before, two years before, you got Jake McLeod, young Queenslander, who did the same, yeah. very similar thing to Zach Murray. What, what about the players? What do the players want? And if, the, if you propose that to the players, would they want the same pathway or same offerings as it is similar to golf? Yeah, it's is a it, good question. The, the top- I, I think the players would be open to anything that gives them the ability to move forward, but also is able to reduce some of the costs. I mean, the cost in tennis has always been the huge discussion on the tour and and how you help those lesser ranked guys. I think the guys at the top, this is probably not going to affect. This structure is not going to change the way a Roger Federer goes about his day-to-day, but it's going to help a guy like a Chris O'Connell, for example, if he stayed here and played in Australia and he won three challenger events, that's not going to get him inside the world's top 100, but it might be enough for him to win the Australasian Tour or the Australian Tour where that gets him entry into half a dozen events, for example, on on the tour. I, I think the incentive to win tournaments in tennis is not necessarily enough. I mean, you could go and get a wild card into the Brisbane International, make 250 points, and you're still not even halfway to the ranking that gets you inside the world's top 100. Mm. So you can win an event on the main tour and never be seen again. And that's the hard thing with tennis. Mm. Can I ask you, Brad, if there's, it might, there might be an example that sort of jumps out here before I let you go, but for those guys that play the Australasian tour who aren't getting right to the sort of top of order of merit throughout all the events through the different states, and then obviously we've got the Australian Open, the Australian PGA every year, can they make some sort of living? Because... I mean, where does their expenditure sort of come in? I mean, they'd all have a caddy, I'd imagine, or most would have probably a caddy. Or what are the other costs associated? If you were just playing on the Australian Tour as an example. Look, one of the good things about the the Australasian Tour now, you've got events, you know, that are co-sanctioned, you know, whether that be the Vic Open that's co-sanctioned now uh, with Europe. So, and New Zealand's co-sanctioned with other tours as well. So you can play some of those events and, and earn a reasonable living However, a sustained living is probably your most difficult part. I love the Australian tour for some of our young athletes to learn their trade, um, to get out there and play in Australia. It's close to home. You can earn some money. Your expenses are very minimal. You don't really have a caddy. Your coach can come and watch you play. So the expenses are very minimal. But more importantly, you learn your trade. As you know, Sam, the, the tennis and golf journey is a long one. Um, and, and you've got to take that time to get there. So, Fred, to get back to your, your question, 
it's very difficult to make a living on just the Australian tour. You're going to have to play in other tours around the world, whether you do pay for play in other, other countries, whether the US or try to get some starts in Japan or in Asia or Europe. Um, but it's very difficult to do that just in on the Australian tour. There's just not enough money there. Now, hopefully in years to come, that changes. I don't know if you remember years ago, you know, there were events down here in Australia, the old corn or the previous corn ferry, which used to be, I think it was a Nike tour back then, mm. where athletes like Stephen Bowditch, that's the way he worked his way onto the PGA tour. That's what we need in Australia. So we have some pathways to these major tours. Otherwise, our kids are so disadvantaged on getting to that next tour. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, really appreciate some insights. It's an interesting discussion. We can't solve it all in one hour on this radio program. But just to really highlight the clear differences of how many golfers are making money uh, compared to tennis players and when, where does tennis go from here? Because they have to solve that issue in, in the long run, and that's been bubbling around for a long time. Thank you, Brad. Really appreciate the chat. Hey, great to talk golf and not a lot going on right now, so we appreciate your time. Brad James, General Manager, High Performance of Golf Australia. I thought we'd just interwind a little bit of golf into our tennis show tonight, Grothy. It's funny, isn't it? Because you can hear him trying to pick my... Because obviously golf's wondering about their structure, I'm sure, at the same time, and yeah. how they can do things better. And we wanted to get his opinion on golf-related tennis. It's almost like he wanted, he wanted the same on the other end, which you can completely <laughs> understand because... We're isolated as a country and we're all trying to do the best for our athletes out in this environment. But I just find it hard that people can't say that that structure is not better than the one we have in tennis when you can highlight athletes straight away who are making that much more money and you've got over a 1,000 golfers trying to play the sport professionally. It's an incredible number, really. Yep. All about trying to keep the expenditure down for tennis players and uh, just being a little closer to home. Not easy to solve. A lot of water to go under the bridge, but uh, everything's on the table at the moment in tennis. Yarra Tennis Coaching, Melbourne's award-winning coaching program at Eaglemont. Since 2002, 20 teams, private lessons, great club, great coach, Shane Scrutton. YarraTennis.com.au. Back with more on the first serve, your home of tennis. The First Serve, your home of tennis. Welcome back, Brett Phillips, Sam Groth uh, with you. Uh, happy to take your calls. one 736 736 Or on the text tonight, 0433-981116. Had a chat to Brad James, General Manager, High Performance at Golf Australia, just before the break as we were just having a look at uh, the golf scene and how that's set up uh, around the world compared to tennis. And, of course, Grothy on our show back on April 13. Certainly putting it forward that... Maybe tennis, as it's now got a chance with this hiatus to really look at the sport long term and its structure, maybe looks to try and adopt something like golf to give more individuals a chance to actually make a living out of the sport. Grothy, I did contact Scott Draper today. I unfortunately couldn't come on the program tonight, but a man who played professional tennis and professional golf, he said this to me, tennis can definitely learn from golf on many levels. Its structure, certainly one of them. One challenge with tennis is it's less quantifiable than golf, meaning golf has a score that the average punter can be impressed by in comparison. Tennis is more qualitative, and when someone is ranked 700, for example, people don't see the subpar rounds outcomes as easily. Yeah. I mean, I, I can agree with Scotty. They're obviously a guy that won on both the ATP Tour and on the professional golfing circuit, so he knows both sides very, very well. I think the other problem that tennis has is, and this is where a tour structure may work better, is that 
players aren't assigned to a region. They don't get the exposure in a market that they can promote themselves in. You know, they jump out of Australia, they play a couple of future events, they go to Europe, they're city hopping, they're country hopping. There's no consistency to where they're playing. So, for example, if I'm ranked 500 in the world and I'm playing golf in Australia, there might be a golf company here that is going to get exposure out of me by playing 15 events. If I'm playing tennis here in Australia and there's someone wants to sponsor an Australian athlete, if I go and duck off to Europe for three weeks and the US for two weeks and down to Mexico for a tournament, where's their their exposure as well in, in that market? And I think yeah. that's what's also hard for players when we talk about this tour structure, not even just making prize money, but also their ability to you know, make money off the court and, and promote themselves as a, as a business or an entity. That's a great point. And and Scotty, just on your point there, Sam, on the structure, he said even though there are separate tours, they bring players together for the majors, the WGC events, the Ryder and the President's Cups, and any player with the right status or ranking can play any tour. So a minor thing but important, the US Open and the British Open allow any player with a 1.4 handicap to try and qualify. That's like a good club player at Kuyong trying to qualify for the Australian Open. Imagine the support locally. Yeah, it'd be pretty incredible, wouldn't it? Imagine. I know they actually do They actually do this in for the US Open. They have a series where players can play their way through and look to get into... There's a doubles wildcard. I know there's a mixed doubles wildcard. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's a qualifying wildcard. But it basically starts out at regional events. You work your way on to state events and national events. And it's like a tournament basically where you qualify your way through. Didn't we have that with the wild card here? I'm going back. I'm trying to think two years ago. I felt like there was a team that got through. Yeah, they had um, They had a um, – yeah, they did. They they tried it. It was a mixed doubles event. I think it was won yeah. by Marja Jovanovic and yeah. Sam Thompson. Sounds I right. think I think they, they maybe even won a round of the Australian. They, they played yeah. through a series very similar. So the US Open has that structure. They've had it for a long, long time, but across multiple events. I want to get your thoughts on this. This was interesting from Scotty, and he, I think he's he's up in Brisbane now. He's sort of removed from tennis. He's in that sort of wellness space. About the culture, the give-back mentality and upholding the traditions of the game, players knowing where their bread is buttered. Golfers are incredibly respectful. They, not all but most, even call Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer, Mr Nicholas and Palmer respectively. Great past and current champions play host at their own event on tour. Every sponsor gets airtime on the broadcast. Charitable undertakings at every event are celebrated and broadcasted. Nearly every event has a naming sponsor. Every event has a pro-am. Spend five hours on the course of the greats. The day before the event starts, it's a corporate dream. Yeah, and I think this is this is the ability that golf has that tennis doesn't. So you and I could walk onto a golf course and we could have a match against each other because there's a handicap systems. And I could go play with the best golfers in the world and have an ability to compete with them to some degree. Tennis doesn't have that. So from a corporate point of view, you can't just throw the head of a company on a court and then the players still play to their best of their ability. So imagine if you threw some down the other end and I'm serving at them, their ability to get the ball back is not the same where if you put Tiger Woods on a tee box, Hmm. They're still teeing off the same. They're driving down the same fairway. They're putting on the same green. And that's where golf has a huge advantage over tennis. And tennis doesn't do that side. Sorry, my dog going crazy in the background there. They've been asleep, for the, last four, they've been asleep for the last 40 minutes. But, yeah, that's yeah. where tennis doesn't have that ability. We're supposed to be fed at 6 p.m. It's now 6.43. You haven't fed them. They're letting you know. My dog expects to be fed 6 o'clock on the dot. They've been asleep, and they've been asleep behind me in my study on the couch. They've been very, very good <laughs> until just then. So... But no, that, tennis doesn't have that ability. So that that's that's one of the issues as well. And golf does it so well. Every time there's a function, 
you know, the players stand up, they they speak. I think tennis needs to get better as well with their fan engagement from a tour point of view and the access that the players actually give. 20 on the table. We're going to slip in our final break. John Fitzgerald is going to join us next. But Reeklink Australia's Sports Share, they're donating sports equipment to disadvantaged Australians. Sports Share, a ball can save a life campaign. Reeklink has been distributing tennis rackets and balls as part of the uh, Sports Share pack to member agencies and the community across Australia. Peter Cull and his team doing an amazing job. They're also looking at other sporting equipment, including footy, soccer balls. You can make a $5 donation. Just jump on the RecLink Australia website. If you've got an old tennis racket, some balls, RecLink.org. Click on the Donate button on the homepage and you can certainly get involved. All thanks to starting from scratch, they offer the premium glass repair. They specialise in the removal of window scratches, bringing it back to its former glory. Yeah, Steve and his team, but whether it's the scratches in the sliding door that your pet dog has caused, that local milk bar that's been graffiti tagged with a knife they can remove it starting from scratch.com.au Fitzy up next here on the first serve the first serve your home of tennis I remember when I was a kid I grew up in a farm in South Australia my mother and I were the only two there during the day so I got involved in games making I had a little wooden bat and on the front veranda of our property there was a perfect little wall with a small landing space that was my court surface the game I played was all based around a rally and my opponent was the wall. I tried to get as many as I could against the wall without missing. I got over a couple of hundred after a while and finally one day I broke the thousand barrier. That was a big day for me. And gee, I had a lot of fun. It was joyful, but I never beat the wall. I'll tell you what, one take and Grothy, you should have seen the backdrop. Extremely palatial uh, backdrop. John Fitzgerald, we love having Fitzy on our program. Of course, Australian Tennis Hall of Famer, if you don't mind announced back at the AO, which, um, gee, seems like a long time ago. And the fact we mightn't have any more tennis until the AO next year is quite extraordinary. But he's all behind the launch of Home Court Tennis. Fitzy, welcome. Hello, Brett. What a pleasure to be with you guys. G'day, Grothy. Oh, great to have you on, Fitzy. Uh, home Court Tennis. Obviously, Tennis Australia looking at all sorts of ways that, you know, kids and, and, and those who just love playing can still stay connected while they can't get out on a tennis court. Exactly. It's actually not that hard to... Uh do some games making is it uh, Brett you just you, you just find a way it's there's plenty of things to do and mine was simple out in the bush I had I had a, a brick wall <laughs> that was it I didn't have to run through it I didn't have to uh, do anything silly I just had to get a little bat that I could make contact with a tennis ball and that and that taught me a lot of the skills actually that that uh, you put into play later in life but uh, but it was simple um, it was a small little area it wasn't expansive um, and there's so many opportunities like that in, in every household, whether it's a wall or whether it's putting up a, uh, a makeshift net on the lawn or whether it's or in the driveway, as long as there's no cars coming past, obviously. But, but um, plenty of things you can do and, and courts can go anywhere. Fitzy, it's great to hear from you, mate. It's always a pleasure. I can very much relate to this. I did the same thing with my little brother when I first up, uh, picked up playing tennis. It was... You know, those two yellow Tatum tennis bats over a line in our house. But do you think sometimes in tennis we've gone away from that simplicity of just having fun and hitting the ball around and doing some of this stuff at home? Like I, I feel like this could be a good period to almost take tennis back to what it was, where it was fun just to get out and have a hit of a ball and create those fun little games. Yeah, I, I think fun is a major part of it, Grothy. Look, my always my first message is, and I've I've talked to a few people recently about this and. Um, people from different walks of life and, and different sports, fun is the first thing you need to have. It's the first thing you need to have because if, if you don't have fun, you won't go back. You know, we can all see those images of little guys with a racket in their hand and, 
they've got a fully pressurised tennis ball on a hard surface that's bouncing over their head. They can't make contact because, especially the first time they've ever played, and you see them after five or ten minutes, they drop the racket and they walk off and they don't come back, sometimes never. So if, if you find a way to have fun and you put a smile on a little kid's face, they will enjoy it and they will come back. It's really simple. So fun is the first thing. The other thing I would mention on, on your line there, Sam, is that is that we've been through a period in tennis around the world where we develop technique and we've placed so much emphasis on technique and the same technique that so many players have. There is still room for a variance in that. You know, you, know, you don't have to create the perfect forehand necessarily. And, and we, we've had this coaching sort of structure, I, I think, that's tried to produce this perfect technology. Maybe that's, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement, but in so many ways, you hear parents of kids saying, well, I've, I've got to do this. I've got to create my game on one of these great champions. Look at her forehand or his forehand and hit the same one. It's not necessarily the case. And when you play, uh, when you play tennis at home against the wall, it, it becomes very apparent. You learn skills from that. It's, they're different sorts of skills, but they're equally as important as the ones you learn from learning, you know, perfect technique, I think. And, and it gives you another string to your bow, I think, when you become a better player. Uh, well said. Tennis Australia, of course, Fitzy sharing inspiration and uh, creative ideas from Home Court Tennis on all its social media and digital channels. Make sure you check that out. Use the hashtag Home Court Tennis, providing a, a really meaningful way for coaches and teachers to actually stay connected with their players and students during a, a very challenging time we've only got about a minute and a half Fitzy but there's a, there's a lot going on in the tennis world at the moment we have been discussing the last few weeks this need for for more tennis players to make a living out of the sport where, where do we sort of yep. draw the line Fitzy in about a, a minute or a minute and a half if you can answer that of how many players how many people should be making a living yep. out of tennis it's a big talking point okay I know we're short in time and it can be a longer conversation but linear prize money we need more linear prize money in tennis, the nature of the sport is that the winner, that we get the same winners more often than other sports. In golf, you get more winners. In tennis, you get the same guys winning all the time. So what they've traditionally done, Brett, is they double the prize money virtually from round to round to round. So there's a reason why the three great players we've got in the game right now have made north of $100 million of prize money. You know, if it, if it was more linear and you went $100, um, $150, $180 to $20 and it wasn't doubling every single time you 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 win a round in a tennis tournament a professional tennis tournament it would make mm. the prize money more linear and it would give the it would give the the lesser players and i don't buy it that someone that's ranked 200 in the world is not a good player they are a hell yep. of a good yep. player and and they deserve more than what they've got the prize money Absolutely. is way too much of a j curve and and just quickly that's why you you never hear the top guys offering to to kick back some linear prize money yep. structures. No Why doubt. would they? They're making the best guys have made over a hundred million. Absolutely. Fitzy, thank you for your input. Uh, great stuff. Thanks to a hundred words, uh, a network of uh, active local communities with the aim of improving men's mental health and reducing male suicides. Doing a beautiful job. Check out hundredwords.com.au. Thank you, Samuel. Nice work. Back to the dogs. Cheers, mate. Go grab a beer and watch the last dance. First serve. We'll be back next Monday night at six o'clock. Stay safe, everyone. Stay well. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.